Well, hello everyone and welcome back to the EdTech podcast. Our aim is to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. This week we're back with our VocTech podcast, this time looking at assessment and skills and thinking about what is skill and how should we measure it, or even should we measure it at all? I've been pondering and chatting to people about the more nefarious applications of assessment in the workplace. And with this kind of algorithmic management stuff, um, there is a potential for that to to displace human management, human managers. But also a lot of the kind of productivity returns are often from um, increased work. So you said about task scheduling, the density of work. So workers doing more with greater intensity. How we can temper this by thinking more broadly about skills. We could have assessment systems that were really good at demonstrating more specific things that people know about or can do. But I think if we can rethink that and make it much more about um, that side of the the equation, about helping the employee stay on course and focus their time and energy where their motivation is, that's a much smarter use of technology. The measurement game, I think that's a game that we're going to lose whichever way we play it. So I'd rather we, we, we give up trying to play that game altogether. And what new approaches are out there? Um, If I'm trying to assess you, if I'm re-watching, for example, a video of that, I'm going to be much closer to how you would do in reality than if I was to to, to just ask you about it or if I was to ask you to fill in one of those like psychometric questionnaires. Um, You're trying to get the visceral behavior uh, out of people by putting them in in a simulated environment. And how new innovation is being funded and supported. So we've committed £1 million of funding. Any organisation that has an innovative idea around assessments can apply for up to £100,000. This was a fascinating round of chats and I can't wait to get you straight into this week's episode. But before all that, in this episode you'll hear all about NCFE's Innovation in Assessment Fund. But you should also know that the UFI VocTech Seed Grant Fund of between £15,000 for new ideas using tech to support skills for work opens again on the 15th of June. Go to ufi.co.uk for more info on that if you've got an amazing idea that needs a bit of cash to get started. If you want to find out more, you could also head to the UFI Drinks, hosted with Titan Partners on Tuesday the 21st of June, which are taking place as part of London EdTech Week. Everyone who registers will receive a digital copy of the 2022 UFI Ventures and Titan Partners report, which is called The Jobs Frontier 2022 catalyzing the future of workforce development and as always the link to register is in the show notes and on our twitter feed and if you're interested in edtech x more broadly that takes place on the 23rd of june in london i'll be there hosting a fireside chat with the ceo of coursera and the great news for listeners is i have a discount code for anyone who wants to attend so if you want to make the most of that code it is etx22 podcast 40 once again etx22 podcast 40 and the discount is uh, 40% off the normal price and again the link is in the show notes here's a quick message from one of our listeners which i missed out a few months back hi sophie love the show um just on your homepage of the for your podcast and you've got an option to view all guests i was interested to see who you've had on over the years 
Uh, it seems to be going to a 404, so I thought I'd let you know. Um, I'm looking forward to the next episode. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much, Tim. That's probably my fault for tinkering around with the website too much. So I'll get back in there now and uh, get that all sorted. Um, And don't forget, if you're a weekly listener and you want to drop a note on something you've heard on the podcast or comment or uh, add a bit to the conversation around what we talk about on the podcast, you can also use that voice recording feature. Um, Just find the SpeakPipe tab on the website to drop us a quick note. Okay, that's all for now. Let's get straight into this week's episode. Here we go. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Sharath Jeevan, OBE, no less, um, founder and executive chairman of Intrinsic Labs to the EdTech podcast. So welcome, Sharath. Thanks, Sophie. Real pleasure to be on. Um, For all of our listeners, Sharath is the Executive Chairman of Intrinsic Labs, which supports organisations and leaders all around the world to solve deep motivational challenges from governments to leading universities and high profile corporations, from L'Oreal to the London School of Economics. And uh, Sharath is also the author of a a well-known book, uh, also the same title uh, called Intrinsic. So Sharath, it's going to be great to have you on the podcast, first of all. Um, This episode is all about assessment and skills. And I suppose like in this episode, I'm talking to a variety of people about how we measure skills and aptitude in the workplace and and also whether we're at risk of making that quite a narrow definition of what good looks like or if we can sort of be more creative about how we um, capture what skills look like in the workplace um, and what that means both for an individual in the workplace and that company itself. So um Given your work with Intrinsic and some of your really interesting clients and uh, partners there, um, I wondered what you're seeing in uh, how companies are going about measuring skills and thinking about what that looks like within their organisations as well. So, Sophie, I think honestly we're we're caught in a bit of a a paradigm trap, uh, to use a teaser phrase, which is that the, the the sort of old ways of doing things are still quite stubbornly being clinged on to, clung on to, sorry, I should say. Um, and I just think of an example. So I used to work at eBay, a large corporate, very successful. And they had a really good system of quarterly, at that time it was quarterly appraisals, where there'd be a whole set of good reflective questions on how you've done, what your what had gone well, what things you'd um, felt you'd mastered, uh, what things were you're, you're struggling with, et cetera all of this very good reflective stuff that was built around what I would call mastery in my language. So becoming the best version of yourselves you can be. And at the end of that wonderful two-page form was a number. So you had to rate yourself out of five and your manager then had to give you their view of that number at phone to five. And I can promise you in about you know, 80% of the conversations I, I listened to from colleagues and so on, that number destroyed all of those, the value of those two pages. And I think that's the paradigm trap we've got into in, in corporate, but also organizational life, that we're still seeing skills as a comparison culture hmm. rather than a form of, of deeper mastery. And it's a really strange uh, way of thinking about the world because we aren't, what, in a way, what's, what is the relevance of measuring one person versus another? In this case, in eBay, I think we've got a, 
it was a 2% difference in your annual bonus based on whether you got a, a three or a four or four or five and so on as well. But it, it was such a demotivating factor because the challenge with modern work now is we're moving away from the kind element of work. So if you were an assembly line producing widgets, you could measure how many widgets were you producing every every hour and you could say, okay, maybe a five is you produce 100, maybe three is 60. There was some you know objective way of measuring that. We're in a world where work is profoundly wicked, i.e. it's gone beyond the technical solution to the point that's fundamentally human about the nature of our work. That brings it inevitably, and I'd argue for the good, a high degree of subjectivity. And so trying to reduce things into such um, you know, neat mathematical you know, scores and so on, I think has a big risk either way of getting it wrong. And as importantly, the perception of the person whose skills we're actually trying to measure and the person measuring it, they may just see things differently, um, you know, quite without any particular biases. There's just a, there is a level of subjective reality with this. So is that, I don't know, is that, is that just an observation where I think too much of, uh, of corporate life is, is still stuck in these old ways of thinking. Yeah, do you know, I'm 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 really chuckling to myself because um, thinking back to my uh, corporate days, I I absolutely was part of that system. So by both either receiving that number myself or giving it out, mm. and um, a bit a bit like all of these things where you where you measure, um, you know, how people um, experience that number whether they're the person receiving it or giving it, there's always a disjunct, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's the, the, the conversation then becomes a sort of wrangling around whether the number is correct and based on, and like you say, it's a complete distraction as opposed to, you know, how can we develop you? How can we um, think about that in, in, in a broader sense? So um, and that's why I was chuckling. It, it just really brought me back to that that experience so many of us have been burned by this this sort of thing and i think look and um the the reason why i think there's a fundamental mental model correction we need to make is that that i'm just using that appraisal system and i don't think by the way ebay was is very typical of so many companies right i'm just using that as an example because i was there but um i think it still has that paradigm that we as the worker are there to do whatever the corporate wants us to, or the organization wants us to do and the organization is going to be the one measuring us and I think where I'm seeing, uh, you know, my work with, um, and I work with companies like L'Oreal, Shopify, very progressive organizations, but also London School of Economics, as you mentioned, governments in Kenya and India. I think where the most progressive organizations are going is um, thinking about work like a marriage, that both sides have got to feel motivated. Of course, the um, employee or worker or leader is there to um, help the organization achieve its goals. But the organization is also there to achieve the the mission statement of the of the worker as well. I found it interesting that the shift from sort of unit economic value and, and measuring from that point of view to something that's a little bit more interconnected and sprawling and about our human human skills as opposed to just uh, the things that can be automated. And one of the conversations I've got for this episode is with an institution that looks at the future of work and they've done um, a report on, say, the assessment of low paid workers within the retail environment. And that to me seems like a very cynical application of assessment where whereby as a whole we're moving towards more, you know, 
what is it that that can't be automated so is it collaboration is it creativity is it coming at things you know in 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 a more sophisticated way um but i guess what it does show is that in some environments there is still this um temptation to 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 kind of um fall back on assessment as a as a as a very precise productivity metric still yeah and i think that that just doesn't you know i think in most roles even let's take um, customer service and you know so much of a role if you're working i was just passing it through today and just saw um, you know there's such obviously a, um a need for workers now at every level sophie of of, of our economy but you know, I was looking at the job ad, I was just walking past the store. So much of it was about, you know, customer service, about being, creating a good rapport with the the customer, uh, making it a friendly place. How on earth do you measure those with any level of, of course, it broadly, there can be some qualitative feedback that's useful for mastery. But I think the point more broadly is that I think companies have got to realize, or organizations in general have got to realize that they're also there to help the employee achieve where they want to go. And and not seeing it, uh, people as comparable widgets where you're just trying to get more productivity out of them, but how are you helping them achieve their purpose? And in doing so, they'll make an incredible contribution to the company. So I think, you know, this idea, what I'd like us to move to is much more personalized assessment, moving away um, from uh, trying to rate or score employees to much more about trying to help um, the employee developer a plan. And, ex- and I'm a big fan of this idea of experience mapping, where what the company organization can do is say, you know, I'm going to try to make sure you get access to these kinds of experiences over the course of your tour of duty with us. You've got to make the most of these experiences, but we'll do everything in our power to give you that exposure and opportunity. So, you know, for example, let's say you're working in a consulting environment and the, the organization might say, we really want to make sure you have the chance to work with a, in a difficult, more challenging uh, client situation because we want you to learn how to troubleshoot and bring an issue back. So they should be scouting out for those kinds of opportunities. But then they then their role is to give good feedback to the employee, peer feedback as well as sort of hierarchical feedback, but how they're doing so they can develop mastery in that area. So from that perspective, do you see it shifting a bit towards more like a coaching culture as opposed to, like you say, the, the rating or the ranking against a mean score? Yeah, so what I, I talked about my, my books up here and Intrinsic about this idea of like what are the different cultures of management out there? And there's obviously a, the, the old school managerial culture, I'll tell you what to do, you do it, you know, that sort of idea. That tends to be the, you know, I pretend to pay you and I pretend to work. That leads to that kind of dynamic often. The second dynamic that is the mentoring approach, which is the, you know, I've done it before, I'll come in and, and, and sort of bring my expertise. That usually doesn't work well because um, situations, especially nowadays, you can't copy-paste in a situation to be the same exact reality. The third area, though, um, which is coaching you described, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a qualified coach, I should say, but um, that tends to assume the employee has all the answers and the organization exists to, to unlock that. That's not always true because the employee also needs more exposure, different patterns, you know, different experiences we just talked about. So I talk a lot about a nurturing culture where the role of the employer is to help the, the employee get to a place they wouldn't have got to otherwise. And it's helping them become the best versions of themselves they can be, not the version the employer thinks they should be. So how do you create that culture? Which is very much about creating experiences, creating support, creating nurturers around the employee who can 
help and guide them and help them reflect. And then trusting that then that will create the motivation for the employee to really do the absolute best for themselves and the company as well. And and with your experience with companies and with governments, um, what's the role of technology in that? Because when we think about the first scenario that we're shifting away from, it's very easy to apply technology because it's sort of, you know, a scalable situation. Um, as it becomes more personalised or around measuring collaboration, creativity, that customer service that we spoke about. I'm just quite interested to know sort of how different technologies might be able to help support that way of doing things as well. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Sophie, in terms of technology has been seen as a measurement tool. That's been largely the problem, I think. So I think if we see it as, you know, we need a, a profoundly human experience. And I, I do this for a number of organizations around the world where I create a space for employees and leaders to define where they really want to go, what's their direction. And as much as possible, make that an intrinsic direction based on where their goals are, what drives them deeply as a person, as a leader, and for their teams. Once that's clear, um, what technology can do is try to help um, the, the employees stay or leaders stay on the course of that direction. It could be giving them prompts regularly. It could be helping them... Um, you know, capture and experience what they learned from that so then they can go back and reflect on it. It can help them give other resources they can look at, you know, your podcast or, or a video to watch or an article to read, etc. So actually, it, it can deeply allow the personalization to happen. That's where obviously it can become very time-consuming and expensive to do that at large scale as you, as you alluded to. But I think if we can rethink that and make it much more about... Um, that side of the the equation about helping the employee stay on course and focus their time and energy where their motivation is, that's a much smarter use of technology. The measurement game, I think that's a game that we're going to lose whichever way we play it. So I'd rather we, we, we give up trying to play that game altogether. Now, Sharath talked about tapping into the intrinsic motivations of people in the workplace to enhance their breadth of skills. But what if, instead of this, the workplace applied the more nefarious elements of assessment to workers? What might this look like and how might we avoid it? I spoke to the Head of Research, Abby Gilbert, at the Institute for the Future of Work to find out more. As as an organisation, we kind of... uh, uh, the relationships that forged us were, came through the Parliamentary Commission on the Future of Work, um, which brought together kind of philosophers, technologists, ethicists, um, uh, lawyers and economists to think about how AI was going to transform work. And because of the kind of research networks that were built through that, but also a relationship with, um, I suppose, Parliament and understanding of the parliamentary process, we've always been very interested in um, driving policy change and ha- keep maintaining those relationships now that we're independently established. Um, to see the right infrastructures, regulatory infrastructures put in place um, to kind of manage this transition. But as an institute now, we're also working a lot more to try and test and practically pilot things with businesses to try and ensure that this kind of technological transition does drive a fairer future of better work and also working with regulators. So, for instance, at the moment, we've been commissioned by the Information Commissioner's Office to develop guidance for businesses on how they can engage workers in these processes of reviewing these systems. So we're really keen to work with um, business partners who want to get this right. We know that a lot of organisations are just learning about these things and would like to take them in the right direction. And so we're keen to support in that capacity too. 
Um, so how I came to be connected with the Institute for the Future of Work and, and your research really is, is thinking about um, this area of assessment and skills. And, you know, there's some amazing innovations happening around that, but also sort of thinking, well, what, what, what's the scenario that we want to avoid? And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes because technology can be um, applied in a very scalable fashion uh, to sort of unit metrics and things like this, I was sort of thinking about perhaps some of those lower paid workers might be in a retail environment and and more reductionist approaches to assessment, thinking about productivity and that kind of thing. And uh, a mutual contact said, oh, you need to go and check out the Institute for the Future of Work and the, and the research they're doing in that area. So that's how we came to be connected. But what I'd absolutely love, Abby, is if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what some of that work covers and some of the sort of framing questions they should be considering to sort of avoid some of the worst machinations of, um, of assessment, I suppose. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I suppose the main piece of research that we've done so far that speaks to this specifically, this issue of kind of um, performance management in an era of algorithmic systems and algorithmic management, um, is captured in uh, our report, uh, The Amazonian Era, The Gigification of Work. And that second part of the title, I suppose, refers to the kind of broad sweeping changes to the uh, to the labour process, to the nature of work that, you know, it's access to it, terms and conditions and quality of it that are the result of this kind of new form of management. But it does all link back to this kind of uh, recognition of performance and how that links to value. And we, we describe in that report something that um, called the human data cycle. And it's kind of the process by which this transformation of work can happen. And it involves three components and they, they're in a cycle um, and feed into each other. And the first of those stages is uh, this kind of concept of representation. And this is where performance becomes or work becomes defined by what can be measured and quantified in within an algorithmic system. So within kind of combined infrastructures of surveillance and quantification. So let's say hypothetically that that's the number of items scanned on a till or it might be the number of emails sent or the number of calls made. Then in the second stage of this human data cycle, um, there's standard setting. So at this point, the kind of these what these performance metrics are, there becomes a standard for performance. And that might be something that's arbitrary, like 95 percent delivery, or it might be set to the highest performer. And obviously, you can see how in some contexts that might lead to discrimination um, and, and issues around ability um, uh, in the workplace, which is something that we explore separately and can perhaps pick up on a bit later. And in the third stage, so we've got this representation where work becomes defined by what can be measured and quantified, standard setting by where those metrics come to define success. And then in the third stage of this cycle is intervention. And this can be punishment, so punitive or positive. So a kind of punitive example of that in the workplace is if you don't make the 95% threshold, then you don't get more access to hours or your contract or you have some kind of you know, remedial action. And a positive version of this would be where there's kind of a gamification of work where you get given rewards for exceeding kind of like standards um, or meeting targets. And this gamification thing, I suppose we can come on a little bit later around approaches to motivation that are the logics of motivation that are embedded in these kinds of approaches. So we've seen that in retail, as you kind of mentioned, um, which was where this study began looking at kind of what algorithmic management was doing, but then actually found that this uh, logic and transformation of work that's represented in this human data cycle is actually happening across 
a number of jobs, both those who are which are kind of traditionally conceived low paid work, but also some kind of like so-called middle skill and middle pay jobs. And this also represents the kind of flip side of this in relation to learning. So engineers that were working in advanced manufacturing who'd seen the introduction of algorithmic management technology within their firm were also set to do this kind of like recording complex tasks on their phone through the app and how long it takes so that they could be planned, predicted and scheduled for the future, but also you know, wanted to have 95% delivery rates of active time that was delivering value in the way that the business understood that value should be contributed. But this also allowed for the kind of recording of how processes were completed in order to um, performance manage staff on the basis of their compliance to the way that uh, was the one best method, which I suppose also relates to kind of performance becoming more, co- you know, cohered to a single approach, um, changing both the agency of mm-hmm. workers, but also kind of transforming the way that learning works in the workplace. I suppose we feel that there's not been enough kind of attention paid to this and that, uh, that that's where the conversation should be in the future. It's just absolutely fascinating. And yeah, that last point I can, I can really see. So um, if that trend continues or scales across different sectors or types of business then ultimately what can happen as the as the learner within that organization the employee is is that is the kind of creative aspects of that job are limited and your ability to, to as, as you say the agency and the ability to come up with creative solutions is is kind of withdrawn which just does tie back to this feeling that things are becoming more task driven from your work in in research is there uh, a a better use of technology that you've seen um well i suppose there's there's a couple of angles on that one of them is around um health and safety and i suppose there's there's a positive and a negative side to the kind of health and safety story but the other one is around improving working conditions i suppose there are kind of various um agents uh, at the moment um, including worker representatives that sort of suggest that at the moment the main issue is that there's an information asymmetry between employers and employees in terms of these data sets and having um, a better parity of access to this information could also be really useful in terms of workers being able to um, uh, organize around changes to work but also kind of negotiate the transformation of work as it happens and to have a better distribution of rewards. So I suppose in relation to kind of the polarisation point, um, this, 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 this kind of uh, transformation could be better understood if it was recognised where the value, I suppose, arises from in these changes to the work process. So if methods are being encoded by workers in ways that deliver value for the business, can that be better recognised with shared data sets? That's so fascinating. So, I mean, this goes back to whether the assessment and idea of skills is determined by the employer or is more like a self-reflection on behalf of the employee. And so I suppose in that scenario, the employee has better access to their own data and to that transformation process and then inputs into, have you thought about this, as opposed to just, let's crank those productivity metrics. Absolutely. A sort of hook that we feel can help with this process is a kind of algorithmic impact assessment on high risk applications of and high by high risk we mean determining access to terms and conditions of or quality of work when they're introduced in the workplace so if a system i suppose we can have conventionally understood technology as automation as displacing human labor so used to be people that did it now technology does it and with this kind of algorithmic management stuff 
um, there is a potential for that to dis- to displace human management, human managers. But also a lot of the kind of productivity returns are often from um, increased work. So you said about task scheduling, the density of work. So workers doing more in with greater intensity. Um, and so the, that, that kind of recognition of that being the aspect of what's going to deliver the business future revenue at the point at which a technology is introduced, noting this kind of negotiation of recognition of skill, but also of value. Obviously, we see sk- some disciplines see skill as an equivalent measure of objective value and those things is the same with us I suppose also the tradition which you're sort of alluding to which recognizes that a lot of this is constructed and we have to unpack it and really think about that and ask critical questions around you know how value is understood and that point of the introduction of technology being one of those moments where if there's a change to work and how work is done we can begin that conversation so having these conversations around um, yeah, how technology changes the sort of um, distribution of work and labour, but also then the distribution of rewards in firms is quite important. And this is quite quite interesting, I suppose, when you look at something like care work, which has got a lot of comparables with retail sector because of the kind of, you know, um, uh, level of engagement, which obviously with customers, which isn't often recognised in these systems because those things aren't metricized, kind of like... Um, and there are issues in, you know, using customer satisfaction ratings, which, you know, if you try and metricize it, because that can encode bias. But looking for and identifying what makes the customer happy is not something that's generally part integrated into these systems, which would mean that potentially in the way that we've seen them work, whilst that sounds like, like yeah, that could be a really positive alternative design, which isn't currently in place. It's a fascinating uh, example to, yeah, to, to then work from, I suppose, to think, well, what would it mean if we began to uh, design systems for the happiness of both those who are working because they're giving joy to those that they work for and that relationship change yeah I guess thinking more broadly outside of sort of vocational and workplace environments um, we've had conversations on the years over on the EdTech podcast about assessment in schools and assessment in higher education and how that again can be quite uh limited perhaps and in, in terms of what we're measuring and in a, in a world that's sort of rapidly changing so um I guess my question to you would be um you know are we at risk of bringing that same narrow definition of assessment into the workplace as has been perhaps um tradition in schools yeah I think I think it's an interesting thing to reflect on um I suppose we've we've picked up already on sort of whether or not can my job be rated on the number of transactions I make on a till as the retail worker? Um, and, and there is a recognition of this within the kind of um, AI and machine learning uh, community that create the systems that evaluate these sorts of forms of performance. Um, and I suppose that reflects this drive for what is often referred to as, I suppose, greater data saturation. So this idea that we can get more and more data to represent how actually multidimensional things are, as opposed to the one dimensional of a particular metric to better capture reality. But this drive to get away from these kinds of single uh, one-point metrics can motivate this kind of ever more invasive approach to surveillance rather than the conversation around, well, what really constitutes what is valuable here for the people that are involved, including the workers. Um, and so I suppose that that kind of, this is referred to sometimes in AI development as kind of construct validity. So let's say performance is the construct. How valid is number of transactions on the till? Is it that is that construct valid? Well, possibly not. Well, how can we get to a sense of really what would be a valid construct? Well, we would make the case that the best way to understand that is to talk to both the workers and potentially the customers that are involved in this. And that rather than working from the base of what can you measure, 
it should be a conversation about what should be measured and that that should be a collective discussion through a process of engagement with those who are, um, yeah, I suppose, engaged in these processes. Fascinating. Um, And yeah, I mean, to build on that, for example, so without going down the bloated uh, route of more uh, data points, how do you see the measurement of things like motivation or collaboration or what uh, area the areas that have traditionally been seen as quite difficult to to, to sort of measure um, do we want to measure them and if we do is, is there any kind of clear path as to how that can be done as well well I suppose um, there is already the kind of like at the moment management of and measuring of motivation is being it is being metricized it is being captured through this gamification approach so through the whole how motivated are you to perform on the existing metrics and then we'll give you rewards with vouchers through algorithmic management systems um, on that and we've seen that that's quite uh, the developers of these systems have said that that's already very popular among youth and in some east asian markets but it has this kind of trade-off with the collective dimension of work because the way that it evaluates motivation is kind of in conflict with collaboration um, so it, because it drives what can be a competition as the logic of how these things come forward. So I suppose the design for uh, creating spaces in which collaboration um, has uh, has a role in also being part of motivation is something that we need to think about more. And I think we're quite interested in redefining the discussion about skills to think about capabilities, which kind of reflects the extent to which people feel able to adapt to their circumstances and the demands put on them and environment um, by having the right resources to respond. Um, and yeah, hopefully that's something, a conversation that we can come back to in the future around how that relates to the design of these systems, following the findings of a, a big research project that we're currently undertaking, funded by the Nuffield Foundation, uh, the Pissarides Review. So more soon on that. Along with engaging workers in their own worker data sets, some educational institutions are also shifting to provide learners with more agency in how they develop, co-create and present work. Dr. Amelia Peterson explains. Here's a bit of background before we then get into our chat. So, um, yeah, really excited to have Dr. Amelia Peterson, who's the Head of Learning and Teaching at uh, LIS or the London interdisciplinary school uh, on the EdTech podcast. So welcome, Amelia. Hi, great to be here. So for our listeners, Amelia is a social scientist with a background in policy and consulting. Amelia studies education reforms and their relationship to social, geographic and labour market inequalities. So um, I'm sure you've got your work cut out at the moment, um, Amelia. Um, But prior to LIS, uh, Amelia was an LSE fellow in social policy. She has also taught and supervised students at the University of Bristol and at Harvard, where she received her PhD. And uh, for uh, regular listeners of the EdTech podcast, um, uh, Amelia is also the co-author with um, Valerie Hannon on um, uh, one of the books featured uh, previously on the podcast. Um, just to delve a little bit deeper before we jump into some questions, uh, on the LIS website, it says, I joined LIS because I've studied education reforms for long enough to know that the biggest change is possible through the creation of new institutions. I've been fortunate to be part of some fantastic universities, but there are still so many ways in which higher education is constricted by disciplinary silos. 
NIS has created a groundbreaking curriculum that respects the importance of disciplines, but explicitly teaches students how to connect, integrate and apply them to complex problems. And that's the frontier of knowledge we need to crack today. And I could not be more excited to be working on it. So uh, welcome again. And thank you so much for giving us your time at, uh, you know, this this point in the year when when time is especially precious. Um to kick off, perhaps at a very top level, uh, what would you say is your approach to assessment and skills with all those different hats on? So thinking of your work with LIS, your research with, with Harvard and teaching there, and you know when you've authored books and ruminated on these topics, which conclusions have you found through that work? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the key thing has been really recognising that so many of the assessment systems we have currently are about ending up with some kind of um, overall evaluation of a student. So we're used to kind of collapsing together all of the different things that students can be good at into things like A's or B's or or a first or a second, if we're thinking of the UK um, university system. Um, And that instead of collapsing together all that kind of information, we could have assessment systems that were really good at demonstrating more specific things that people know about or can do. Um, So this is traditionally how things are thought of more in the vocational sector, where it's more about kind of demonstrating that you've really mastered a particular kind of domain of skills. Um, But it's something that we don't see as much um, in the more uh, kind of general school sector and and in higher education. Uh, We're very uh, sort of obsessed with giving people these kind of overall evaluations of how they've performed in something um, and of trying to make things, uh, make those evaluations comparable across subjects. So, you know, we want to end up with this idea of an A in English being the same as an A in maths or a a first in biology being the same as a first in maths. Um, But actually all of the effort that goes into trying to kind of create those comparable evaluations means we really lose uh, any of that more detailed information about what what can someone actually do when they're coming out of one of those kind of programs. Um, And so I think a real shift in assessment would be to, to focus more on what are the ways that we could communicate more specifically about kind of what people know and and what they can do and whether that would enable a a much more uh, motivating, um, a much more reliable, much more valid um, way of assessing. That's just so interesting. And uh, yeah, and everyone listening, I I, I think, you know, with with all the usual caveats, like, you know, it's just so inherently sensible, you know, um, and and a a sort of direction of travel that I don't think uh, many people would argue with. Putting that into context for sort of workplace training and thinking about um, skills in relation to the workplace, have you got any um, examples of, you know, um, either companies or sectors that are approaching assessment or, or how they kind of um, think about the, the skills within their company, within within the employees within their company, how to sort of measure that without collapsing in that reductionist way that you talked about yeah so so we know that big companies are often looking for quite specific things some of them are even coming out and saying that we don't want to sift anymore on some of these um sort of uh, really general indicators like first or two ones um we actually want to use our own kind of internal assessment processes so you've got places like mckinsey that bought up one of the companies 
um, that had developed a sort of problem solving assessment and actually brought it in house. And it was quite an interesting moment because I'd been following for a while the development of this um, kind of computer based problem solving assessment. And it suddenly sort of disappeared. And it turned out it was because McKinsey had, had bought it and they wanted to just use it for their own internal purposes. Um, and there's all kinds of questions about, okay, well, what should be the more specific kind of skills that, that companies focus on and, and issues of fairness around the use of some of these tests. Um, but I think the key thing is to recognize that, yes, these companies, they, they do want some more specific information about um, kind of what, what sort of ways people are thinking, what kind of things people can do, uh, rather than just these very sort of blanket indicators that tend to come out from, from more general qualifications. And, and that's really interesting hearing about that problem-solving example. Um, m- one of my other questions was going to be about the role of technology in 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 sort of you know helping to bridge towards this broader sense of what assessment might look like in in, in a way that's useful for all of the stakeholders going forward. So whether that's you know employees, whether it's the actual companies, the sector. Um, what's your take on how technology can be used for? You know, it's very scalable to just sort of have uh, have metrics, have units and plug technology in and, and, and sort of measure in that way. But are there more creative ways that we can think about that and, and still leverage technology to the good? Yeah, I, I think the, the key role for technology could be in generating assessment questions and tasks that help to make assessments more unpredictable. One of the big problems that we see in a lot of the um, the kind of high stakes, whether it's you know exams or tests that are used in formal education systems, is that you get that kind of teaching to the test or sort of training for a particular exam, and you're actually then not it, it's not a great assessment in the end because an assessment is meant to sample from a domain of what people can do. It's not meant to be something that you just prepare for that specific thing, um, and then all it really tells you is whether you can do that that particular thing. It's not telling you your your knowledge or your skills in the broader domain. Um, more unpredictable assessments give a better indication of what someone can actually do because rather than them just having been prepared very narrowly for those particular style of questions, um, it's assessing then their more kind of general ability uh, to, to know or be able to do something in that in that domain. Um, so I think technology has a role there in terms of kind of generating tasks or, or questions. I think where it becomes a bit more of a limiting factor is where um, uh, obviously, anything that is kind of uh, computer based is ultimately sort of rule based and therefore is somewhat predictable. Um, and so I think we have to strike that balance between uh, developing forms of computer based assessments that that can maintain that element of unpredictability um, and not become something that people can kind of train on uh, too narrowly. Uh, so that ultimately then all that's being indicated is kind of well, how much time do you spend training for that particular test? And, and so th- this might be a bit naive and a bit a bit simplistic, but is there something in the idea then of you know um, an assessment that that's actually valuable is 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 one that you can't game you know one that's a little bit more complex that talks about that interconnectedness that that that, that I kind of shared in the beginning is is that sort of a good starting place to to think about uh, how to avoid all of those. Um, concerns around gaming assessment as well? I I think it's certainly one way to think about it. Um, But I think the key question is, 
is the preparation that you do for an assessment something that is going to sort of help you more generally? So if you've got an assessment um, that is that is very unpredictable, that has, the, you know, there's a whole range of different styles of questions that it could ask you, and therefore to prepare for it, um, you're going to be kind of reading widely, for example, or practicing lots of different styles of writing um, or practicing oral presentation as well as written work, you know, a whole variety of different things. Um, then all of that is kind of, you know, genuinely good practice for a, a wide range of things you might go on to do. Um, so I think it's more about what does the assessment cause you to, to practice and is it pushing you towards developing developing skills, developing in ways that are actually going to be useful to you further on? Or is it causing you to kind of over-prepare or sort of overload on one, maybe one narrow kind of writing or really focus on mastering one particular area that you know is, is kind of on the syllabus or whatever it is? Um, so I think it's 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 that question of sort of the unpredictability. Does it lead to more, more breadth of what you're trying to master? So um, in terms of your approach, taking all of this into account with um, LIS, um, one of the things we're looking at in this episode is that ability to um, bring in, you know, those executive skills, the collaboration. And I think you sort of touched upon it there, because ultimately, if you're practicing, you know, verbal communication, that's partly about establishing rapport and all of those things. So how do you go about thinking about that as well as the, the subject matter expertise and, and, that, and that kind of approach and, and how to... Uh, have a gauge on how well a particular student may be doing in any of those things? Yeah, this is definitely something we're working on in an ongoing way. Um, But the main thing is just requiring students to produce uh, group products. So they have to work in groups of five um, and create um, sometimes pitches, sometimes reports, um, and to, to a kind of pretty high standard. Uh, and so they they have to work together over the course of 10 weeks um, to generate that, that product. Um, and then we also get them individually to reflect on and write about that process. So at the moment, we sort of think both the, the practice, the actual kind of work of creating something in a group, and then that kind of metacognitive element of being able to reflect on and articulate some of what they've learned from that is the main way that we're making ways that we're looking to ensure that they are um, kind of getting better over time at being able to manage some of the unexpected things that come up when you're when you're working when you're working in a group Um, but it's definitely something that we are continuing to kind of think about there are there are interesting assessments I know out there being developed um, of kind of teamwork Um, it's actually um, a friend of mine who works with um, uh, it's called Ben Wyman, who works with Dave Deming at Harvard. They've developed a, an assessment of teamwork that they are road testing and doing research on at the moment. Um, and so these are things that we can start to try and assess in a more standardized way. Um, but I think there's still open questions as to uh, the benefits of, you know, do we want a more kind of standardized metric or indicator of that kind of skill? Um, or do we want these sort of authentic products um, that then students can can have in portfolios, they can take out, they can use in their conversations when they're starting to meet with real employers um, to sort of demonstrate the quality of work that they're able to produce in a group? Thank you. Um, and are you sort of seeing this mostly focused towards the knowledge economy sort of sectors or, or going well beyond that? I mean, certainly for our students, that is that is a big 
focus. Um, you know, our curriculum, as we say, is sort of based around complex problems. And really, that means um, problems that are largely sort of undefined, um, uh, that are related to these big issues such as sustainability, inequality, um, things where there's always sort of moving goals, shifting interests, and they have to sort of navigate and balance all of that. So a lot of that inevitably then, yeah, leads into certain sectors of the of the knowledge economy. Um, but that I think now encompasses quite a wide, wide range of sectors. Um, if by the knowledge economy we mean, you know, things that rely on um, information, the generation um, and, and absorption and use of, of new kinds of knowledge. But I think what it would look like is, for example, across different subject areas, having a better sense of, okay, well, what does like really high quality written work look like? What are the kinds of standards that we could talk about across different subjects? Um, or, uh, you know, what does it mean to be able to synthesize knowledge? And that could be in a subject area, it could be across it. But if we have more standards of some of those kind of cross-cutting things and we've got assessments that are better at indicating whether people are kind of reaching those standards, I think that's where we would really move beyond just this sort of vague idea of A's and B's and first and do ones um, towards something that um, where, where you know the actual knowledge and skills people have can be more, more meaningful, more visible, um, and therefore people have more more incentive to actually um uh you know develop and not just sort of try and perform on on particularly narrow assessments it's quite interesting listening to you hear uh talk about that as well because I'm, I'm sort of almost seeing a mirroring of um the unpacking of jobs and you know when we when we think of um automation rather than completely killing jobs just sort of shaving bits off and and also potentially how we measure or think about things becoming a little bit more um task driven and 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 that could sound negative but if you look at it a different way and you think about portfolio work then you know in, in the same way that people might work for lots of different companies um need to show their portfolio of work in the same way rather than just having this massive scheme of work and curriculum and then getting a a very defined grade at the end it's more okay I did this bit like how did I perform what level was it at how can I display it and that those two things almost seem like they're they're kind of in sort of syncing up slightly as well Absolutely. I mean, I think the example one can always go to is if you think of um, those bits on LinkedIn where people can kind of put up, you know, what skills they have. And at the moment that just relies on, you know, other people can sort of say, oh, yes, I think that person has that skill. Um, but there isn't really anything that sits beneath that that says, OK, what do, you, what do you need to have demonstrated to be able to say that you're expert in qualitative research or design methods or whatever it might be? Um, and at the moment, our assessment systems are not well geared towards kind of credentialing those skills. Um, this was the the kind of theory behind a lot of the sort of badging or micro-credentialing stuff that has never really taken off. Um, but I think that's that's the shift that we should be trying to look at is how can we try and make sure that our assessments are actually giving information about um, whether people have mastered a yeah, particularly useful kind of skill or area of knowledge um, and, and not something where it just sort of remains opaque about, okay, well, you've got, you know, you've got this degree or you've got this credential, but what did you actually do to, to get that? One person who is working to share the breadth of our skill sets in a comfortable and tangible way is Christophe Mallet at Body Swaps. Here he talks about how this might play out in the world of work. I still think 
So for our listeners, um, Body Swaps is an application that allows learners to practice skills that are difficult to replicate in a traditional learning environment. So um, absolutely brilliant for this episode on thinking about assessment and skills. And Christoph, when you think about assessment and skills and body swaps, what does that bring to mind? Well, I think the one thing you mentioned is, is um, what we measure. There was this study, I don't know if you remember from Google a few years ago, there was, uh, they studied a lot of teams around the world in many organizations uh, and high-performing team and low-performing team and, and, you know, looked at a lot of criteria and asked themselves, what makes a high-performing team? What is the single most decisive criteria when it comes to having a team that works? This is especially important now that everyone is, is remote. Um, and what they found was not like, gender or diversity or level of salary or level of education, it's psychological safety. The more psychological safety you have in a team, the better it works because it allows people to take some risks, to speak their mind, to be creative, to stick their neck out without fear of of being crushed. Um, So that's great. So psychological safety drives performance, but how, how do you measure psychological safety in a team? And if you measure it, how can you increase it? And I think the main idea behind Bodyswaps is to say um, a happy sheet at the end of a, you know, of a session, on the, of a PowerPoint session, whether on Zoom or in the room, measures nothing. Right? It just measures how happy people were for, for a couple of hours. Um, and if you then speak to people, if you ask someone to, let's say you want to assess the manager of that team and you ask him or her, um, you know, tell me about how the time you solved the conflict as a way to assess psychological safety. The only thing you're going to get from her is, um, is a beautiful story, right? It's, it's, it's all going to appear great, but you have no idea how good she really is. And obviously, you cannot just go in the real world and observe them, you know, as, as something is happening in the team. That's not possible either. We would have to put camera on. It would be horrible. Um, so you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place there. And the idea behind body swaps is, is just like a flight simulator where, you know, you put pilots and it's mandatory and every six months they have to do some flight simulators and you will know based on their performance in a flight simulator uh, whether they would be capable of handling that particular type of accident in real life. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're doing with, with, with immersive uh, VR, right? You put people in, in simulations. So it's safe, but the performance in the simulation is much, much closer than if you were just asking them the question. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And and can you kind of expound a bit on some of the scenarios that you put people in? Yeah, so um, we have one on gender inclusion. And um, the idea here is not, you know, put you in the shoes of someone who's being, being targeted. Um, the idea is more how do you challenge someone who's not being inclusive in a way that is constructive does not antagonize them so that they can change their behavior without feeling humiliated, right? That's that's the behavior you want to achieve. Um, and so in a simulation, when you start, you're going to find yourself in a, in a project meeting with Sam, who we call sexist Sam for obvious reasons, and Sophie. And, you know, they're interacting, talking about the project. He's being horrible to her. And your job at first is just to observe and to, you know, click, press the button every time you feel that something is, is, is said or done is being inappropriate. Once you're done doing that, you get your results and he might tell you, okay, Sophie, you, you picked up when Sam minimized 
um, um, her colleague's um, emotion, but you didn't pick up his excluding body language. Let's revisit that, that precise moment. So that's just a way to learn that's immersive and you don't need actors and, or anything like that. Then you're gonna be face to face with Sam and you need to ask the right questions, choosing between different things to ask. So if you said, um, Sam, you're an asshole, well, what's gonna happen? Right, he's gonna, he's gonna, well, first he's gonna be shocked that you speak like that. Um, and then he's gonna cross his arms and shake his head and say, it's not me, it's her. And we're going nowhere. So the software tells you to mistake you, then you can try again. That's pretty standard stuff. But the difference is Sam is, is a virgin human, right? He's like a video game character. So he's here 24 seven. He has no feelings and he has no judgment. So you're not role playing in front of your colleagues or in front of a coach. It's, it's a safe space to, to interact. Um, and then once you, once you found the right combination of answers and he's reluctant, he admitted that maybe he was a little bit tough, um, that's your, your place to intervene. So then, then you need to speak in your own words and tell him what you observed, uh, the impact it had, um, and what you expect from him moving forward. And you speak to him the way I'm speaking to you now. So you try your best, you're improvising, and then you watch yourself back and you get data on your performance in terms of what, uh, what you said. So all in a, in a safe space. And obviously, the things you're going, you're going to say to virtual Sam in the simulation, um, if I'm trying to assess you, if I'm re-watching, for example, a video of that, are going to be much closer to how you would do in reality than if I was to, to, to just ask you about it, or if I was to ask you to fill in one of those like psychometric questionnaires. Um, you, you're trying to get the visceral behavior uh, out of people by putting them in a, in a simulated environment. And and that that's super interesting. So then, what happens if I'm the the customer? What happens with that information? How do they then take that information and make sure that the next um, interaction with a potential colleague who may have done well or may have done badly that that is constructive as well? Yeah, I think there's there's two um, two dangers. Um, We've had clients that try bodies up and say, oh, it's great. We don't need human beings anymore. We, we, we can just put the learners in there and then, uh, and then they're, they're ready to go in the, in the real world. Um, and that's not the case. We see very much the simulation as a tool. So the same way in a real flight simulator, the pilot is never alone. There's always an assessor uh, right next to them. And so it's a tool to observe one's behavior in the simulation and then have that very rich human one-to-one interaction about how to iron things out. Right, so it's it's a conversation starter rather than uh, uh, than the whole thing. The the other danger is around the data, um, and we see a lot of people in VR outside who are trying to assess, give you a score, and say, oh, you know, you're ninety two percent not racist and you're good to go. Um, and and that doesn't work for a few reasons. One is, uh, so we use a, a artificial intelligence, especially you know voice. Analysis, you know, what you said, so some semantic stuff, some speech emotion as well. And it's good, it can give you some insights as to, you know, you didn't use some of those words that would have shown us that you understood what happened, maybe try again. But you can game that, right? You could literally be insulting the character and the AI will not, uh, will not pick up. Um, and secondly, AI has biases. So if you have an accent like mine, um, the, the speech to text that is necessary to analyze what you said. It's not going to work very well. Um, so, so I would always say use that as as you know 
as an alternative to having a role play, an alternative that is much more scalable and flexible and safe, but don't use it as, a, as an assessment tool in and of itself. Always use that kind of idea of collaborative intelligence in which coach is going to leverage the, the technology to be able to provide a coaching that is all the more you know, tailored and precise. And then talking about where you partner with people to help surface these aptitudes or needs to improve skills. Um, so I can I can see that you're working with with sort of companies. Are you also working with um, the earlier stage of talent development? So whether that's further education colleges or universities who obviously want to to show that their students are more than a number. They're going into the workplace that they have got this rounded ability as well. Yeah, indeed. So we, we work a lot with, with further education. And I think the, the challenge has been identified a while ago, but is only now starting to, to you know, be tackled is, um, is the soft skills gap that exists when someone graduates from you know, further education college and goes into employment. And the employers are reporting back that the people they hire often have the technical skills because you know further education colleges have been doing that for hundreds of years, but they're lacking the, the collaboration, the leadership, the ability to stand up, to give feedback, and, and, and all of this. And, and it's very difficult to train for that. There was no historically no provision for that in the colleges. And as always, it comes you know, by the government, from the government by way of, of, of Ofsted, who's now assessing education institution on their ability to also provide learning around those skills. And because there's now a, to be very blunt, financial incentive for yeah. institutions to, to develop those skills, then they're looking to invest uh, in solutions. And some of, I was, I was thinking to my girlfriend who was at UAL a couple of years ago and had a job interview uh, training course in which the, the tutor, who was the art tutor, uh, history of art, uh, so not really qualified, was just uh, asking students to go, you know, in pairs to do a mock interview with one another at the end of the room and then come back and report on it, which is, it's, you know, box-ticking exercise. It's completely yeah. useless for the students and it's an absolute waste of time uh, for the teacher as well. Um, and so because those are not uh, corporates and they cannot afford those, you know, expensive learning providers who will have a coach uh, come in and organize something, that leaves, a, that leaves a gap, right? And so if you can give a tool that is that is autonomous, that is scalable, uh, that is engaging, which is probably the, the number one uh, uh, criteria they're looking at. And then you have a chance of, of first getting the students to care about those, those skills and secondly, start to practice them. Surfacing more of these engaging and new approaches to skills development and recognition is part of NCFE's current mission with their Innovation in Assessment Fund. I caught up with Jessica Blakey to round out this episode and hear about the focus of the fund and how people can get involved. There's a lot of chats out there around assessment and um, a big appetite, I think, for innovation in assessment. So I'm sure all of our listeners will be uh, listening in very keenly to this episode. Um, the good thing about NCFE in this space is that you have funding behind these activities. So can you tell us a little bit about the Assessment Innovation Fund, what you've done today and what you've got coming up as well? 
Yeah, sure. Now, for us, innovation isn't just thinking about all that future technology and that kind of thing. Innovation can be as digital as that, but also as analog as an innovative way of engaging employers in assessment development, for example. So going all the way through that spectrum. But what NCFE are doing are putting their money where their mouth is. So in the summer of 2021, uh, NCFE launched the Assessment Innovation Fund to lead innovation within assessment across the sector. So we've got a really controlled process that delivers robust results and evidence. So we've committed £1 million of funding through our social investment strategy to to support this. Um, So what we've done so far is any organisation that has an innovative idea around assessments can apply for up to £100,000. So that's kind of any stage of a learner's journey as well, from kind of diagnostic, where where are learners at, how do we assess learners to help them make good choices about selecting courses or qualifications or CPD if you're an adult learner all the way through your formative assessment. So how do I know how I'm doing and to, into the summative space? So our mantra as a team is evidence to informed disruption. What we want to have a look at is building an evidence base to inform change in the sector. So within the Assessment Innovation Fund, the way that looks is that we've got a really robust process that's pre-screening, an expert panel that's made up of industry experts as well as internal NCFE colleagues, and they put the applications through the ringer. So we're in, we've had close to 100 applications so far, and so far we've only awarded five successfully. So I'm really happy to talk about those as well. And they're on a real range from everything from kind of using digital credentials and badging within assessment to use of VR to making um, regulated assessment more accessible for learners with SEND. A span all over as well. So it's not just the UK. We have um, a successful application from the University of Newcastle in Australia um, who are working with us to test the process of moving from quantitative to qualitative feedback So mo- on their teacher training programme. So moving away from kind of your marks, grades, 80% distinction, that kind of thing, to qualitative digital badges that actually tell the learner how they're doing um, in real terms in a way that they can pick up and actually apply that to their work. Um, so they're evaluating um that approach and that impact on staff and students and the retainment and workload and um, getting some really positive initial readings on that. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because some of the other conversations I've had for this episode are exactly that, like how do we get away from the sort of unit basis of assessment to, um, you know, a a broader look at uh, what someone's abilities are People talk about 21st century skills, but how do we actually measure them, I suppose? And and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that in, in the context of the fund or your broader work as well. Absolutely. So a lot of the vocational education um, suites mean that we're assessing skills that are by definition quite intangible so things like teamwork and what does that actually look like how do you break that down and we know evidence tells us that effective assessment looks differently based on what you're actually learning and what you're actually wanting to achieve out of the back of it what the purpose is so with things like assessment for empathy it's making sure that your methods are allowing your learner to perform to the best of their ability with what's in front of them and making sure that that's done in a valid and reliable way. But we don't have to resort to what's known. We can start to adapt. So things like adaptive assessment, there's evidence that shows us that in that kind of scenario where you have something like adaptive assessment that takes a learner throughout their journey and builds around them based on 
how confidently they answer a question. So when I was a teacher, somebody in front of me, as you leave my classroom, I used to have exit tickets, a little question, each learner would fill it out. Um, and then if it was right, it went in one pile. If it was wrong, it went in another pile. I might sort that out based on misconceptions or just directly wrong, whatever. The AI can do that from everything. So not just one question that I think is my hinge question for, for my lesson. It can do it identified on so many different metrics and build out for that learner. Now, what that does, we know the impact of that has been shown to be things like um, a more immersive experience, more accessible uh, for the learner and for the educator to see the analytics at the other side. And so we can hypothesize that that will do things like reduce test anxiety because the learner feels more in control, especially if the summative then reflects what they've done in their on-program learning space because they're already familiar with it. They've done it a thousand times. You're not just relying on like a mock structure to get them prepared. There's loads out there that we just need to understand where it works best and where it has the best impact. And then we can really start to put the learner at the center of the assessment system. It is hard to innovate in this space because it is quite regulated, obviously. And we need to make sure that what comes out is valid and useful for employers, for further learning, for the learners. But there's certainly ways to do that in a more innovative and adaptive and human way. Um, and that's certainly what we're looking to build up an evidence base around. So things like badging as you're going through, so you collect it, you understand what skills that you've got. So, for example, you've got a um, distinction in insert qualification here. What does that actually mean? What do you do well? What do you not do well? If you wanted to progress, like what, what areas do you need to progress into to do better in the next qualification? All that kind of thing needs to be considered and built in. Newcastle University in Australia is, is one of the ones that we got going first. Um, we're also working with Sheffield College, who are testing the effects of VR to enhance learning through a range of assessment approaches. We're working with a project called the Really Neat Project, um, and they're testing the effects of a personalised form of assessment that will allow young people to access assessment via an immersive experience. So they're looking at piloting that in uh, functional skills assessments that their learners take. Their hypothesis is that using modern technology and games-based principles um, will be more engaging and more accessible for learners who may have had negative experience with education previously and have additional needs. Um, we've also got two that are going on at the minute and that are looking around a formative assessment using open-ended questions. So the first one of that is called Bolton College and their platform is First Pass. We're really pleased to be working with them. Um, so they're looking at using natural language processing technology to give real-time feedback. So they start on one of their business level two courses um, and then they're are currently out actually asking for more people to come and get involved and more people to volunteer to have their learners to help train the AI to be more effective. Thank you. And is it a rolling fund? So if people are listening in and they're like, oh, actually, I think my development or um, initiative might be relevant. How is there a window when they apply or is that just a kind of rolling conversation? Yep. So we do have some funds that's likely to roll over. So the million pound hasn't yet been spent. And um, we have another window that's going to be open in uh, the autumn term. So kind of October, November deadline. And there'll be information about that coming out any moment. So to date, the, the grant has been open to um, up to £100,000. And while that funds will still be available, we actually want to focus on some smaller scale projects next. So the next window will be looking at projects of up to £25,000. So hoping that that will encourage a, a more 
diverse, um, focused, potentially smaller scale pilots, um, rather than some of these ones are kind of quite big um, and big in scale, big in time scale, big in scope. So we want to get some more focused, kind of narrow but deep impact within maybe a college or um, FE sector um, specifically. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so the NCFE have spoken about the three A's of the future of assessment. So can you kind of enlighten our listeners as to which A's those are? Yeah, of course. This is in a response um, to JISC. And so we looked at the JISC uh, manifesto for the future, as it were. And so I could talk about the three A's, but more specifically, what we were looking at as part of that um, was the accessibility part. So one of the ones that was most important to us was thinking about how accessible are our assessments actually. And this is what I mean when I'm saying that it's not just kind of you whiz bangs and future technology and everything very exciting in that form. Um, It's also thinking about things like how can we work with our staff to make sure that we are representing a variety of people in a neutral or positive setting? How are we working with um, our assessors to make sure that we are not baking in bias in the way that we assess? Are we analysing our data to highlight areas that we might be um, benefiting some groups over others and really baking that in so all the way through so at the innovation end we look at technologies that can help us do that better and in a less manual form at the minute we've got a team of data crunches that help us do that but we want to make sure that we are putting every learner at the center and making sure that we are not compounding bias and that we're part of the solution not part of the problem when it comes to making real accessible assessment just on a personal note, you put, I really liked your description here about, you know, your background. You put you were born in Pontefract, West Yorkshire. Your mum was a primary school teacher in schools in ex-mining towns. Your dad grew up entirely disengaged from education. And obviously you've gone on to uh, be involved in education and shaping educational systems and processes as well. So um, are those two things related? And, you know, did did you sort of see the impact of when... Uh, that design could have been improved? What's the kind of relationship between, um, you know, growing up in that environment and and, and the changes that you want to see as well? Yeah, definitely. I think having uh, my mum being so engaged in education, she was, she's always been a classroom teacher in and around um, communities that really needed stability and investment in their education. I think there's a lot of areas in the um, in the country, not just in the north anymore, like when we look at the regional and co- coastal rural towns that really need some investment. Um, and so I've always been part of that conversation of what, why is this different? Why isn't this fair? Um, and as I said, so my, we've got a bit of a difference between my parents, so whereas my dad was just like, he dropped out of school um, fairly early on, joined the army at 16 and just had an entirely different um, experience, but was always very much a champion of um, understanding what education could get you. And what I saw growing up, I was very fortunate with kind of the group of friends that I had. But when you were looking around, there were people who were as smart as me and as good as me at school and all that kind of thing, you know, nothing nothing spectacular from my point of view of like what I was achieving. When you look around, there were people who were better, brighter, but not doing the things that I were doing because they didn't have somebody behind them pushing them. And for me, that was always interesting. It was only when I got to kind of a little bit older and I was reflecting back on it and the opportunities that you had. I think if you're in a position where your education's got you somewhere, and with the support network around you, you kind of have a responsibility to 
open doors that other people can't open by themselves and leave the door open behind you to pull other people through. And I think that for me, that's the work that we're trying to do at NCFE as well. So when I, I trained to teach with Teach First, and that was a conscious decision because of their social mission at the time. And I think NCFE with their charitable arm, this is this is what we're doing. We're thinking about who is it that isn't being vocal in the sector, who doesn't have a voice, who is finding it really hard to push that door open. And then we're identifying the areas where we can make that more accessible. We can leave the door open and we can get those inroads. I think especially that's interesting in the VTQ, the vocational space, because when people think about your level threes, you think about A-levels, you think about GCSEs, you think about um, the typical picture of, in August is of some very happy looking kids jumping off the top step of a school, clutching the results in one hand. VTQ looks different. It doesn't give you the same photo ops, but they're the people that kept the country going during lockdown, like people who do our kind of qualifications, the people that were turning up, keeping things ticking over, the brains, the minds, the the skills to keep us all going. And it, it needs more attention. It needs more investment. And that's very much what we're focused on, what we're wanting to grow. That's all for this week's episode. My thanks to Sharath, Abby, Amelia, Christoph, and Jessica for being amazing and insightful guests. Thanks also to UFI Voctech Trust for supporting this series. And thank you, as always, to you for listening. If you care to add a rate and review on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon Podcasts, you will be rewarded with wonderful Wi Fi access wherever you go. That is a fact. Bye bye. <laughs>